Hello boys, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. It's recording night and uh, we have a special guest. I'm really looking forward to this and if I'm excited then Michael, you must be so excited. I'm extremely excited. It's a top guest that we have today, but let's get back to that in a second. What have you been doing? I have mainly been working with my my firewall project, quite heavily inspired by you actually, Michael. But uh, I guess I have a very different need and setup than you have. But I have spent a lot of time with that and I am a proud owner of PFSEN firewall. A NetGate firewall with PFSEN, right? Exactly. It's it's a bit a little bit loose to say I'm I have PFSense because PFSense is an open source firewall. You can get that and just install that on whatever you own uh, type of hardware, more or less. But yes, I'm Netgear. No, Netgate. It's not Netgate. Netgear. Sorry, Netgate. I always mix that up. Can't they just merge and become one company? It's a lot easier for me. You know, summit summer camp. It's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. I always yeah. do. No that. Netgear. No Netgear. No, please. Save us. Hmm? So what did you end up buying? <laughs> the funny thing was, I my plan was to have one 6100 and one 2100. And the 2100 is a fairly powerful small firewall that can do a lot of traffic. But then I started to look at the numbers because someone told me, no names, Michael, that maybe that small one is not enough for you. <laughs> so I started to look at the specs. And then... To, to actually be able to utilize all my bandwidth, I need to go up uh, not one step, but two step to the 6100. So I, I ordered one of each because I thought I could have one at home where I have the main connection and the smaller one in the office where I have a not, not as good connection, I should say. It's still good. But I screwed up when I did the order. So when the, when the package arrived, there was actually two 6100s and one 2100 in there. So I ended up sending back the small dude, and I have two of the big ones. So now you have NetGate 12200 cluster. <laughs> <laughs> and a big hole in my wallet. So that's uh, yeah. kind of summarizes it all. But I'm, I'm actually super happy with it. And I am de- definitely not com- done with my configuration. There is so much more I can do related to my my firewalls and my routing but i've done the basic thing that i wanted to achieve the you know the the most important use case and that is to hook up both offices so when i'm at home which i am today when i I record this i can actually get hold of the nas that i have standing in my office so i can get hold of the files on that one and vice versa when i'm in the office i can see what the kids are are doing in the network and i can print on the printer at home but i want to do other things there as well right i want to be able to set up a road warrior configuration so when i'm out and moving around i should be able to connect back home and that way be able to connect to my gear at home and i want to make my dns setup actually a little bit better on the the firewalls and there is a lot of other things i can do so it's it's a fun project and uh, yeah, I, I do a little bit here and a little bit there. I've only locked myself out once so far, so I'm pretty good. Yeah, factory default. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> save the config every now and then. It's you, you easily get back, so that's fine. Yeah, I also went down the same road and uh, purchased a 2100. Shared my experience with you, so you didn't have to make the same mistake, but uh, apparently you did. <laughs> so now you have, like, uh, I think, what's the routing capacity? On the 6100, I think it's 18 gig or something for IP routing. Ah, it's, it's a lot uh, on pure routing. Uh, yeah. Designed for the future. Right? 
Oh, yes. But I'm, I was more thinking to actually be able to push a lot of data through the VPN tunnel between the offices. Mm. Yeah. And especially if, if I do the Road Warrior configuration, because then the traffic will actually go in to my home and then go out again into the office. So yeah. then I, I need more power, but still, I'm not even close to needing all of that horsepower. A long story, I went to Copenhagen to pick up a 3100 and then I saw they had these nice boxes of the new 4100 and then I changed my order and got with me a 4100. So now I have the 4100 here in Fransborg and then I have a 2100 standing here on my desk with default configuration. I want to send it somewhere. Where should it go? Send it to the queen. Oh, no. I pay tax, man. I pay for her life. Oh, sorry. Yeah, well, send it to Jens then. He can, he needs a firewall. He needs a firewall project. You want a firewall project, Jens? I'm really up for a firewall project. Okay. It's looking quite interesting what you've been talking about. So let me give it a go. Yeah. We'll look at it Saturday and yeah. uh, I will give you a, the grand tour and we will do a configuration that matches your network. But it requires some commitments and it's not a four month project. It's maximum one week full speed. That should be uh, easy. To put the whole home network at risk. Exactly. <laughs> Getting trouble with your kids and everything. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the reason why it needs to go fast, right? Because you, you can't really be without the network. I mean, when I switched, everything was down. The funny thing was I set it up and I thought everything was fine. And then I put it in place and I put all the cables in place. I, by the way, now have a really nice setup at home. A lot less cables and electrical modems and things gone away. But... Yeah. It took a while for this machine to boot. It took like five minutes before it started to be responding. So I thought, oh, I, I screwed up somewhere. And I started to realize, oh, I don't have a, a network card for my uh, for my laptop. I only have Wi-Fi. So I started to look around and finding stuff. But when I found all my things and was able to, or just about to connect, it just went online and everything started to work more or less. It was just like mm -hmm. the vacuum cleaner and the Sonos that was a little bit problematic to move yeah. over. It's when you start to work with these things like gateways and packet filtering and stuff like that, you uh, get reminded who is actually connected to your network. And I have a guest Wi-Fi network, which all my neighbors to the left and to the right are actually connected to. <laughs> they started knocking on the door. <laughs> Why is the internet not working? I think the internet is working neighbor i'm just sitting on a firewall so the reason why i did it was for for privacy reasons and also uh, because i want to have a smarter dns setup i want to be able to encrypt and pick up all my uh, my dns requests and if you look at your log file on your firewall you will see a lot of sessions doing queries out in the world to all kinds of strange servers every time someone tries to do something on the net. But let's have an explanation for everybody that's uh, not really in network geeks. What is uh, DNS? Well, there is a few different ones. Uh, there is the phone book analogy, right? Where, where you can compare DNS to a phone book. And sometimes I hear the analogy with, with a map as well. But mm -hmm. I will go with a phone book analogy because I think that makes quite a lot of sense. The thing is that... The computers, when they talk with, with each other over IP networks, so internet is built with TCP IP, UDP IP, where IP is the, the base protocol. And there, every machine has an IP address based on, on a few bytes, essentially, in the, in the package. And that is how they communicate. And that's how they, the machines know where to, when they get a package, what they should do with it, if they should consume it themselves or they should route it somewhere else. Yeah. But for us human beings... 
that is not a very good thing because most of us are quite stupid when it comes to numbers. So if I want to go out and read the news and I want to go to a Danish newspaper or Balinske Tidning or whatever it's called, uh, or Svenska Dagbladet or something, I don't know their IP addresses. I know their domain name, so I can write that and I will get there. And then we need to have something that actually translates that name into this IP number. And that is essentially what the DNS system is doing. It's a big database that connects the name to an IP address. People doesn't understand numbers and computers doesn't understand names. Yeah, it's really one of these fundamental blocks to make internet work. Without DNS, we would not have the internet we have today. We have been talking quite a lot about privacy in this podcast. How about DNS and privacy? So DNS is interesting because it translates every request we make to the internet. So over the years, service providers, cloud providers like Google, like Cloudflare, are actually picking up the request and our behavior. That way they can read our behavior on the internet. So they know every site we go to. They know when we do it, where we go. They know a lot of stuff based on DNS. Also governments are interested in this. They can see where we make queries to Facebook or wherever people go. So that's why this protocol is actually interesting. And the thing about DNS is that it has always been unencrypted. And that was one of the reasons why I did my PFSense slash NetGate project was that I wanted to encrypt my DNS because it's my traffic, it's my request to the internet. So I did a setup where every DNS request is actually picked up by my new uh, gateway and forwarded to a secure private DNS resolver called Quad9. And what Quad9 does is that they are a non-profit operating for very little money, doing a lot of work. And they actually have some interesting perspectives on threats and threat feeds that if you subscribe to this DNS server, you will actually get that service. And it is the closest thing I have ever seen on the internet to be really, really free. It costs you nothing. It's not like Google or the service provider where the price you pay is actually your privacy. So on the show today, we have a general manager of uh, Quad9, Mr. John Todd. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks for having me. There are big resolvers in the world, and everybody uses DNS, whether they know it or not. But could you talk a little bit about where does Quad9 fit into this whole picture of Cloudflare, Google DNS resolvers? And you know, sure. what, is, what is the reason for Quad9 from your perspective? Sure. What, what is the reason for Quad9? We're getting very philosophical very quickly. Yeah. So <laughs> Quad9 was founded um, a little bit more than five years ago now. And the purpose of Quad9, first of all, there's a, there's a tactical purpose, which is to provide DNS services that give people security, meaning that it elevates their security personally, but also gives them privacy, meaning we're, that we're not monetizing their data and they can feel safe that they, what they're using us for is is not being used in an unexpected way. So that's the kind of the tactical reason for Quad9's existence. But there's also, uh, there's a kind of a larger uh, philosophical purpose for Quad9's existence. And that is that by existing, Quad9 provides an example that other recursive resolvers need to match, right? We are we are elevating the state of the art for both security and privacy in the industry. We're a not-for-profit. We, we don't exist to collect money. So we have the luxury uh, of, of doing these kind of things and pushing the industry forward, even though for us, 
being the first to do it in some cases might not actually be very profitable, or in fact, might be might cost us more <laughs> um, to start with. But by existing, we are trying to motivate change in the rest of the industry. That's that's kind of a secondary benefit of what Quad Nine does, and so we are happy to see the improvement of security and privacy in all recursive resolvers, not just in our own service, um, but really trying to drive that that forward uh, globally. So how does that actually happen? And, uh, you know, you have your service today, but how, what kind of organizational work are you doing among the, the root service and the DNS providers? Well, um, we're, we're really leading by example. That's the method that we've chosen so far uh, that, that seems to be working quite well. Quad9 is an example. We launched in 2017, mm. and uh, we were the first major resolver to implement a standards-based encryption. So from client to recursive resolver, that means that uh, you can encrypt the DNS requests themselves so that someone who's in the network sitting in somewhere, anywhere in the path between you and the recursive resolver can't see the requests being made. So, you know, HTTPS has been great. It's it's driven an enormous amount of privacy benefit, but DNS was still unencrypted. <laughs> uh, so that no matter, even even if you went to a website which was, was encrypted, no one could see what you're looking at on that website. But by the nature of the website itself, meaning the DNS host name, they could make some pretty accurate assumptions as to what you were doing and where you were going. So, we implemented DNS over TLS uh, in 2017 in our resolver globally. When we launched, actually the day we launched, we announced we had encryption as well. Certainly, we are not the we don't believe we're the only thing that's motivating people to move to encryption, right? But the fact that we existed and we had encryption started to make other resolvers go, huh? You know, we've got to we really got to move gotta forward and, and actually, <laughs> right? We've got to we've got to start putting this into our own. Yeah. Um, and then as DOH or DNS over HTTPS came out later, we implemented that. And so essentially taking these new encryption protocols, and in fact, either, there's even one older encryption protocol called DNSCrypt, which we also implemented at launch, uh, but it's not standards-based. We did that as well. So leading by example for technology is something that we're doing, and also then leading by example for policy is another. Our privacy policy is, uh, I, I believe it's the best that exists today. If you take a look at our webpage, we've got a very, very in-depth privacy policy about what we collect and why we collect certain things or what we don't collect is more important. What we don't actually collect as IP addresses. We never actually are able to relate a particular query to a particular IP address, which most privacy advocates, and in fact, in some places legally, an IP address is equated to a natural person in some cases. So um, our privacy policy is extremely detailed. And in fact, parts of that privacy policy were pulled out and used in part of the RFC which describes you know, best practices for privacy policies. So again, by creating that example, we're really trying to push other organizations into not using DNS as a, as a data source. So, so that's, that's our model right now. You also made it a, a little bit more tricky to yourself because you, you rehomed <laughs> the whole company from the US to Switzerland. We did. So the the company, the, the nonprofit was founded in the United States in, in uh, 2017, or launched in 2017, actually founded in 20, late 2016, I believe. And the United States has, of course, is a, is a collection of states. So there is no national privacy policy in the United States saying what you can and cannot do with data. So that leaves questions in people's minds, especially users. Quad9 is a global system. We have locations in around 180 cities now in more than 90 countries. So when people are looking at the DNS, they're saying, well, okay, I'm, uh, 
know, you're a U.S. company. What are you doing with my data? So your laws, basically the laws around that privacy were uh, interpreted to be the laws about U.S. privacy. Well, and if you go in the U.S., you have to look at it state by state. Well, we are, we are a California corporation, and what are the laws in California about privacy? And that's a very, it's a difficult thing to explain to people. Mm-hmm. And um, additionally difficult are that there are data collection uh, issues that, that um U.S. organizations can be forced to do that are are less transparent. Um, now we've never actually seen, or we've never received any requests by law enforcement for data, but the problem is in the U.S. It's possible for law enforcement to make those requests and tell the organizations not to talk about it. Mm. So again, even though we believed we were not necessarily a particularly interesting target for that, the fact that it was able to that those questions were able to be raised and we didn't have a good answer um, forced us to reevaluate how our how our privacy applies to us and then how it applies to the end user. We looked at a number of different countries to see if there was some better solution. Could we move Quad9 into a nation where privacy was enforced by the national law uh, onto Quad9? Therefore, it allows us to easily say, okay, this is how we treat your, your private data and we must treat it that way not just by the fact that we say so, but we must treat it that way by law. And you have to live by the law of the country you right. operate we, in. I mean, that's we, how it is. Yeah, we, uh, that is, we, we definitely do not break any laws um, uh, as far as anything that we do goes. And we'll get into that, I'm sure, later in the show as far as some of the, the questions now surrounding our, the lawsuit in Germany. But mm. we, we looked at a number of different nations and uh, it turns out that Swiss law actually has some very interesting uh, hooks in it that allow anybody, even even non-Swiss citizens or people living outside of Europe or anywhere, to essentially raise complaints against us if they believe we are treating their data in a way that is inconsistent with the Swiss data privacy laws and our policies. So uh, essentially, Switzerland was the most stringent on privacy that we were able to find. And also had several other advantages. Um, we have a really great partner in Switzerland, uh, Switch, which is the Swiss Research Network, who has assisted us in this transition. The Swiss government was willing to actually uh, give us some things in writing. Again, if you go to our do- website, you can see some of the documentation there that we have from the Swiss government declaring what we are and are not. And those were all things that led us to rehome the con- uh, the company or rehome the organization in Switzerland, which was, I think, a really great move. And it's been a, I, I, it's been well received by everybody. Isn't that a pretty exhausting process to move a company? It was, yes, <laughs> <laughs> it was very exhaustive. It took us, it took us more than a year um, of very steady work to do that. And there's an enormous amount of paperwork yeah. and uh, documentation requirements. And the Swiss are very rigorous about how certain things are done as for your nonprofit. And so, no, it was, a, it was a very costly and, challenging process for us to do. You know, in hindsight, it would have been great to have founded the organization there in the first place instead of having to transition from the U.S. But uh, some of these things you don't know until you are, you know, well and underway. So, but um, uh, I'm very pleased with that transition. I think that it is, it's now a very clear story to end users that while we, we have not actually changed the way that we treat any of our data, it's, it's identical to when we were a U.S. organization. 
But the story is that it is now legally not possible for us to do anything other than exactly what we say we're doing. And that's the really important part. And, and that it gives them some comfort that, that we're, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to just believe us on our word, which is what is the case with most U.S. companies now that are doing DNS. Um, you actually have some legal ability to take action if you believe that it's not happening. And now, of course, in the rest of Europe, um, the GDPR has some good hooks in that it does give users some rights for the way their data is being treated. And so I, you know, I'm more comfortable with some of the way that uh, the way that that the GDPR covers DNS data, but it's not as rigorous. I don't believe that there's the way that somebody who's not in Europe can raise an issue for services that are not located in Europe. I, you know, I, I'm not going to put my legal hat on here, but that's the belief that I've been, I've been given that if you're, you know, Africa and you have a complaint against a European company that's operating a service in Africa, you have no, you have no standing. But with Quad Nine, you do. So again, this puts Quad Nine in the worst possible situation, where uh, where it's possible for us to be, you know, uh, open to these kind of issues. But we're not we're comfortable with that because we're not using data for any any way that is outside of the scope of our privacy documents as they currently describe it. So it, we are comfortable with what we're doing, and it just gives people the the assurance that we we're doing what we say. Reading the privacy policy is actually for a nerd like me is really a beautiful paper. <laughs> it's really it's really. <laughs> One of the better, it, right? It is really a good, good. it good pro- privacy policy compared to anything else I read. Good. I I I think it's a very interesting discussion. This thing with DNS and GDPR, because for DNS is something that we must use. We can't use the internet without finding the the IP address for for the name essentially. Mm-hmm. And at least as far as I have seen, DNS hasn't at least in Sweden been that much up in discussion related to GDPR. And that kind of is, is something that I, I realized just a little bit ago that most providers in Sweden, they if you have a phone or you have an internet connection, they push their resolver on you. Sure. And if you don't change that, you use their resolvers and they would they get all, all the information you're looking for. And that really amazed me that we haven't had that discussion around GDPR related to DNS. Is that some an area that you have you know, seen a lot uh, about during these years with Quotemine? I think I think there's a great understanding in the DNS community about how important DNS is and how much it illuminates the individual as far as what their habits are and their demographics and their behaviors. I don't think it's been discussed particularly widely outside the DNS community. And I, the problem is that DNS is a rather technically challenging thing to describe to most people. Everyone everyone has different analogies. We have the, the telephone book analogy. We've started to use maybe a roadmap analogy because it's slightly different. And it's just something that's not as easy for people to understand, even though there is significant privacy implication. The GDPR for DNS resolvers, the, the belief is by most, and you know, I'm, I'm going to put the term most, that is that the GDPR does cover the data that is resolved by a resolver, especially if you're logging, and, and in fact, really by virtue of the fact that it's logging the mm. IP address mm. of the origin, if your DNS system logs the IP address. We, of course, don't log the IP address, so we skirt the issue of the GDPR by not collecting any data. And this actually is this actually is a big challenge for us, um, in a way that doesn't seem to make much sense. In that, 
we've been approached on a number of occasions to describe how we, you know, how does it that we handle data that's described by the GDPR? And we simply say, we don't, we, we don't have any, we never collect it. <laughs> and that really throws people for a loop. They just don't understand like, well, no, no, we need to understand how you're handling IP addresses. And we say, we don't, we don't, we don't collect it ever. And they kind of wander off looking confused. It's, it's an easy way, right, to manage GDPR issues, but it is challenging to explain that we, we simply don't, it doesn't apply to us because we don't have the data. This is another area where actually we're hoping to be an example. Because we managed to avoid some of these difficult reporting regulations by the virtue of not collecting any data, we hope to be an example to other organizations and say, hey, look, it's possible to do DNS and not collect any data and nothing bad happens. Like you don't need to collect anything here. There's unless the only reason you need to collect IP addresses is if you're doing something, if you're either trying to monetize the data or you're trying to collect some information on the end user and then yeah, GDPR obviously applies to you. So um, again, we're trying to, to prove by example that this doesn't need to be the case, that you can, from a privacy perspective, you can dispense with collecting any of this data and it still works on a global scale. And it's really, the principle of data minimization is really a great one when it comes to privacy, right? It is uh, yes. the thing to think about also as an individual, whether I actually expose my data and, and using a resolver where you don't have your IP address stored is really unique. But a, a common argument for actually having this information is to be able to improve uh, the service or to make sure that it's not misused. Yeah. So how, how do you do that if you don't know who is using your service? So Quad9, as we've talked about, security is actually one of our primary things that we yeah. provide, right? The, the reason that most people convert to our service, I, we believe, is that we provide this very, very, very comprehensive set of domains that we block people from resolving, that we or in our threat intelligence provider partners, they they believe are malicious, right? They could be malware, they could be botnets, they could be phishing sites, stalkerware, phishing sites, all yeah. kinds of things. So we collect it, we have about 20 different threat intelligence providers, all who are amazing. They give us that data and we in turn give back to them aggregated information about things that happen on those domains, right? If they give us example.com and we block it, every time we block it for someone, we'll give them some data back, but it doesn't include anything really about the IP address of the user. It's where, what the rough geography was, like what was the, what was the general area in which the client was, what time did the block occur, and then in what pop, what location did we see this? As uh, I think another data data point that we we do in some cases provide, but that gives them really interesting information to then improve the data feed that they give back to us. So, yep. so this is how improvement occurs without having to. I mean, they don't necessarily care about what the actual end user is, and we we certainly don't collect that. But they allows them to say, all right, this threat is increasing or decreasing. What are the rough geographies in which this threat is appearing? Like we've seen some activity as an example on Poland and Ukraine, yeah. where activity is increasing on certain domains. When we give that information back to the threat intelligence provider, it allows them to sharpen the knife, like to figure out are these domains, you know, what are the domains we're blocking? Are there subdomains that are more interesting? Is there, you know, is there a particular geography that this is being targeted on? So uh, you know, we don't we don't need to collect information on individual users in order for it to be effective. Yeah. We have aggregated information, though, that we can give back to 
our threat intelligence providers, and yep. also potentially to researchers who are looking at what's the general scope of the DNS, what's it doing, and how do we improve security based on that data. That's that's really what we're about. How do we improve security for the end user using the non-personal data that we have? And we do a really good job at that. I mean, we're an exceptionally good job at that as far as blocked domains and the speed of which new things find their way into our feed. That's one of the things that as a consumer that you will have if you enter Quad9 as, as your resolver mm-hmm. and change it from the yep. default, that you will yep. actually benefit from this uh, threat intelligence that you actually provide. Mm. For the end user, especially the one with no particular IT knowledge, it could be quite intimidating trying to change some settings on the DNS. And if you have some knowledge, you know, don't mess with DNS because then <laughs> nothing works. Right. Yep, that's true. Well, what what have you done to help these kind of end users? So this gets down to it becomes very platform specific in some cases. In other words, how do you change settings in different operating systems? So last week, as an as an example, we made an announcement where we have a version of the uh, what are called profiles for the mobile configs, uh, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. iOS and macOS. So those are double double click on this download, and it will just install, and it's signed, and it just it just changes your settings magically. So that's one way. Mm. So for Apple devices, I think we've got that pretty well under control. For Android, we have an app, because Android actually makes it quite difficult to get inside the operating system and change the DNS. So the app will do that for you. So we've got an app. It's uh, just Take a look in the App Store. It's called Quad9, uh, or search for Quad9, and you'll find the app. Mm. And that actually has some reporting as well. So if you trip over a site that's blocked, it will actually We'll give you a little pop-up window and it will give you the name and things like that. So there's some advanced features in the Android app as well. Windows, we have some instructions on the website, but uh, we don't have an app for that that automatically goes and configures it. And that's that's probably a hole in our, our portfolio right now. But we do have good instructions and a video on how to do it. But honestly, really what we... While our website is geared towards end users and people to try to understand what Quad9 does, the people that make the most effect or they have the most change are network administrators. It's the, it's the person who knows what DNS is. They actually understand it. They might even have a DNS server already in their school or in their, their small government agency or their small company or even a big house where there's, you know, there's one IT expert in every house, yeah. right? So our goal is to really talk to those people and say, all right, by changing the settings in one place, change it in your DHCP server, right? Hand out quad nine addresses for everyone in your organization. Those are the people that can make the changes much more quickly across a much larger group of uh, users. Instead of educating each and every user, right? Just- right. And and it's very like, so I'll diverge again. Quad9 is a nonprofit. We have very little funding for things like market outre- outreach, right? It's, I mean, we have almost no funding for marketing. So when we're competing against multi-billion dollar companies who are trying to convince you to use their DNS servers for their purposes, whatever those purposes are, um, we're challenged, right? So we can't easily market to end users on the scale that we need to. So really, we've been focusing on how to convince network administrators, because when a single university changes over to Quad9 and starts to forward their queries from their resolvers to ours, you know, with one decision, we make 50,000 people move over, which is, as far as we're concerned, that's the biggest win. We will definitely uh, link to all these documents. Yeah, yes, please.
in the show notes and on our website. Uh, that's what I like to hear because I'm suspecting that there are a lot of there are a lot of network administrators who are hearing this, and so there <laughs> so, are. And yeah. and I was very pleased to see the uh, the support documents that you talked about. It was oh, I, I can figure out how to click on a link and make sure that. Yep. I'm okay. Yep. And my family is And I can okay. do it for my mother. She won't understand what I did, but it will take two yep. seconds and she will be in a better place, right? <laughs> yep. That's, really that's, that's the goal, yeah. right? It's, it's, the, it's speaking to the people who sort of already know what DNS is and can make the change for others who might not understand it. It's, it's difficult to educate someone on what DNS is and then bring them to the point where they can change their DNS settings. That's, that's a big ask. Mm. So really, it's been most effective for us. We're still trying that, by the way. Don't say, don't, don't no. get me wrong. We're no. still actually trying to convince and talk to more people about what the DNS is and why it's important. But again, with limited resources, we're really trying to make the changes. And so the changes are the people who, the changes can be made most effectively by the people who have control over large numbers of end users' systems. So trying to talk to those folks about why it's a benefit, not just for the end users, but it's a benefit for their network as well, and you know, reduces the amount of time in the day they have to spend solving problems, that seems to be the most effective way to get people to convert. So speaking with the network administrators, and uh, we see in browsers like Firefox, in, in Brave, and, and other browsers, that they are enabling uh, DNS over HTTPS. So we have these competing technologies for encrypted DNS, but there's slight differences in what you can actually do as a network administrator if the organization or applications have built-in resolvers and they can actually specify their own DNS destinations and their own DNS parameters. That's kind of weaponizing the user. It is. Um there is a, and this is this could take a whole other show itself. But there's, <laughs> there's, there's this constant battle between providing security is is one component. Um, in some cases, you don't want an anonymous network, no. and there are legitimate cases where the, where an anonymous network is undesirable, right? Where you're in a large corporation. If you have, as an example, a financial institution, they have a legal obligation to not allow end users to do what they want, right? There's, there's, there's negative repercussions of that. And parents, as an example, wanting to provide some kind of filtering for their children. Again, there's a balance between the individual's privacy and the network operator's ownership of the network. With more applications starting to use DNS over HTTPS, they're pushing the security question farther and farther down into the app. And there are. St I understand the, the arguments for this, right? You want to actually have the end user have control over their own destiny, but do they have knowledge that they have control over their own destiny, or are they are they moving away from a, a management platform that actually is in their benefit by by encrypting this all the way into the application? And then what happens when applications themselves start to become the the danger, right? Malicious applications are now starting to use DNS over HTTPS or DNS over well, DNS over HTTPS is the dangerous one because you cannot distinguish between DNS over HTTPS traffic no. and regular HTTPS traffic just by looking at the wire. Uh, at least you can't do that and easily. also DNS is known as a good exfiltration protocol. If you wrap that into HTTPS, there's no yep. chance that you will ever see what is, right. what is leaving your network. Right. So we prefer DNS over TLS, mm. and that's the one that we came out with. Even though we support both, we, we're actually all, we're, we love encryption in any form. Mm. But if you had to ask us, we would say that DNS over TLS is the more preferred because it has the ability for a network operator to identify it as DNS. 
They can't see what's in it. Oh. They can't tell what the DNS is, but they can say, oh, that's a D- that's port 853. So that's A query DNS. is being made. Right. So it, what it does is by using DNS over TLS, you don't create a condition where the end user is the enemy of the network operator. Mm-hmm. If you use DNS over HTTPS, the network operator now is in a position where they don't understand what's going on and they can't possibly have control over either DNS or the data traffic for the end user. What really happens from a security point of view is that as a network administrator, you lose visibility completely. Right. Which is a big part of security. (laughs) Exactly. And if it is not possible for you to have any visibility of any kind, the network operator is always going to win. They're the ones that control the wire, right? Or the the network, whatever it is. So they're going to implement some policy, which is probably not going to be really friendly at all. Like in other words, when, when everything is completely encrypted, but the network operator has some legal or very clear structural obligation to provide some filtering in some cases, right? They are going to implement a solution that is really terrible where no privacy is respected and all everything has to go through a proxy or there's, they're just going to say, all right, the internet is turned off. Everything has to go through this device over here on the network and therefore nobody gets any privacy of any kind. And that's really what we're worried about with this kind of competition of security versus individual anonymity. And I, I completely understand both sides of the argument my problem is, or, or I shouldn't say my problem, Quad 9's problem is that we, we don't want to argue against either one of these protocols because they're both encrypted and that's great. What we don't want to see is a net loss of privacy. And so how do we position ourselves to, to encourage what we think is going to be the long-term better answer? And it's difficult. If to an enterprise network, for example, would like to control the DNS and they figure out DNS is running over HTTPS, they would have to do SSL decryption meaning that they would have to decrypt all HTTPS before it mm-hmm. actually left the network, leaving a right. bunch of data exposed in uh, on right. those devices. Right. Or, or they simply say there's no, uh, the data can't leave the network, meaning the end user, the end-to-end internet will be broken. Yeah. And I know Nat already did that, but let's just ignore that for a second because <laughs> Nat is sort of halfway in between. Yeah. But the ability for an end user to communicate directly with the end site if a network administrator has a legal obligation or a, a technical obligation to understand what's going on for security or for policy purposes, and there's no there's no way they can control the network in any way, they're going to put in a middle box that everything has to go through, or they're going to do things like enforce um, putting certs, you know, root certs on everyone's machines like yeah. they've done in several countries, which yeah. is to everyone's disadvantage yeah. and is really, uh, it's it's not a good thing. No, it's not. And I, I can actually see that in in some cases, you actually have to to give up your privacy in one way when you're at work because you are at your workplace. They own right. your laptop. They own essentially. And it's your like time the law of the country you operate in, right? That's yeah. yeah. And, and I'm kind of fine, and I I, I can definitely under, understand that you give up a little bit there. I, I think the the big problem that I actually didn't really realize around weaponizing the user is actually the the main problem will probably be at home or at a lot of families because we don't have the possibility to do this at home. We don't have the equipment, we don't have the knowledge, we will not do it. So we will not be able to see or control what our kids are doing. And now now I got scared. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's... it's, (laughs) (laughs) It it is, it's, 
It's a difficult thing to keep up with. And so, you know, you then you have to start saying, all right, well, is there other software I can implement? Or do I just want to avoid the software that has these capabilities, like, at all? Like, the browsers that include Doe, do we want to delete those and never allow them to be installed? And it moves the, it moves the conversation somewhere else. But let me, let me fi- kind of wrap this one up and say that we're additionally challenged by the fact that it is not possible to distinguish between a parent wanting to apply a reasonable security or policy model on their child. And you cannot distinguish that from a country wanting to apply a policy model Mm. against certain content. Mm. And so this is why this really becomes a difficult conversation. I have no easy answers, right? But because it's, you can't tell the difference between those two things, Mm. but it's both conditions are completely morally valid, uh, meaning that they can both exist in a way that's consistent with the law but they, they also both, uh, they can oppose each other, meaning that you may not want either one of those two things, right? I want, I want someone in a country that is not free to be able to get to parts of the internet that, that allow them to get more data. But I don't necessarily want to take away the ability of parents or uh, network administrators to filter things that are inappropriate for their networks. So encryption is, a, is always a double-edged sword. And again, these two protocols, DOT and DOH, hmm have slightly different ways that they're implemented. We tend to favor the TLS model because we can at least identify the traffic and give the network administrator some way to block it. Mm. They, you know, the end user might not like that, no. <laughs> um, but we hope that it prevents the more egregious security policy from being implemented where there is no privacy for anybody. I heard you on, uh, on another show, I think it was half a year ago, where you talked about the fact is that I can encrypt my queries to you, but then... You make another query, and it leads me to the question, what is actually the state of uh, encryption now here, half a year later, among root servers? Uh, not much further than it was then. <laughs> uh, the, the, I shouldn't say that. There's, there's lots of discussion about... So recursive resolvers sit at the very edge of the network, yeah. if you look at a diagram, right? The end user talks to the recursive resolver, then the recursive resolver, on their behalf, talks to all of the authoritative servers that might be involved in answering a particular question. And there might be dozens in yeah. some cases, but usually it's it's about three or four. And the encryption between the recursive resolver and the authoritative resolver is still, there's really no significant encryption of that data. Mm. It's it's not optimal. We would definitely like to see encryption between the recursive and the authoritative servers. But there are some solutions which reduce the risks of that. As an example, if you're one of 50 or 100,000 people in a small country that's using Quad9, then your query comes in encrypted into Quad9's server cluster. And then the query for the actual domain you're trying to get to goes out. Now, if there's 100,000 people also doing the same thing, it's really difficult to figure out, looking at the outside of Quad9's clusters, Mm. what queries are tied to what encrypted socket data. So by using something like Quad9, you're kind of, you're disguising yourself in the mass of end users. And the larger the system, that you're connecting to, meaning the more people that are on it, the more difficult it gets to become to figure out what queries are happening for what people. So, so there is some benefit for that. But I am, I am hopeful that we will start to see more encryption soon between recursive and authoritative servers. There is some conversation about, you know, that there are some authoritative operators who don't want to implement encryption um, because of the costs associated with that, you know, the computational costs associated with it. So it it remains to be seen what will happen there in the next coming years, but there is movement towards making it happen. Uh, And then how do you identify that a server has encryption and 
when do you tear it down and when do you fall back to unencrypted those are these are all really difficult questions to answer yeah and it's a long-term thing yeah it is if we move a little bit further you know you have a great value proposition for individuals and consumers for for privacy reasons and we also touched upon the uh, the block lists which all is actually uh, something for enterprises that they can take advantage of by yeah. changing their resolvers. Right. So if I walk the floor of an enterprise, what would I tell them if I said, this is actually one thing that you can do to really improve your security and to minimize the set of risks that you will see approaching your network? Yep. So there, typically there's a couple of reasons. Quad9 is free, first of all. So that there's a huge reason <laughs> to not <laughs> use Quad9 that we have eliminated just by the way that we operate in the first place. Free is an extremely difficult value proposition to argue against. Yeah. So even if we only give you 1% benefit, <laughs> um, it's free, again, it's, it's really hard to beat. Then, but we don't give you 1% benefit. We actually are, we're actually fantastically useful, and I'll get that in a second. But So there are a couple different arguments that are used by enterprise, or not arguments, but questions that are raised about why, you know, why should I use Quad9? Because I, I have all these different things. I ha- we already have a recursive resolver in the business. Mm. That's usually that's usually the case. A large enough enterprise will have a recursive resolver somewhere at the edge of the of the network. It mm. might be a Microsoft Surfer, it might be Bind, it might be any one of the op- other open source projects yeah. out there. So, the way that we reduce the friction, we actually prefer organizations to have an existing recursive resolver at the edge of their, right. their yeah. border, right? Yeah. Um, and that's for a couple of different reasons. One is they can they can apply their own policy. So if they have their end users talking to their device, uh, unencrypted perhaps inside the, the corporate LAN, they could apply a policy on that recursive resolver that does a bunch of different things, like blocks certain sites, or it uh, has split horizon where certain queries to their internal resources are answered by that device. And that will have their own enforcement point, policy right. enforcement point, right? So, yeah. so they have a policy enforcement point, they have a logging point where they can actually log queries for either security or for uh, institutional reasons, and also for performance. That recursive resolver that sits at the edge of their network can become basically a forwarding cache. And so it's always going to improve performance to have those answers locally. But what we tell them is, all right, why don't you try it out? Why don't you set your current recursive resolver or your cache to point to quad nine for its upstream queries? Instead of asking all of these different servers out on the internet for the answers, just, just point to quad two. nine. Yeah. yeah. And see what happens. And uh, so that way your users have no change. There's only one person that needs to change it. It's the network administrator, and they can do that on Setting Monday up morning. Two forwarding and they can, servers. Yeah. Right. And it's very, very simple on most of these software packages to set up a, to, to point all your queries to an upstream mm-hmm. resolver. And so that usually gets rid of the objections where we simply say, great, we're not trying to change the way you're doing anything inside your business. Just point to us and you get all the advantages of Quad9 security, but you also have all the existing advantages of your policy, your caching, and your local control. And that usually is most of the <laughs> most of the objection issues go away at that point because the, the fact that we can get... One of our founding partners, uh, Global Cyber Alliance, a couple of years ago did a study and they found that around roughly 30% of all cybersecurity incidents 
had a DNS component that if something like Quad9 were implemented with a perfect filter list, we could block and essentially get rid of roughly 30% of the risk of cybersecurity incidents. So then you have to say, all right, well, let's say I implement Quad9. What's your, what's your rate of blocking? So there were a couple of independent studies done that showed Quad9 in the above 90%, meaning that they picked a bunch of test domains out of a bunch of different sources and said, all right, does Quad9 block these right now? And the answer was, yes, we do. We perform surprisingly well. Again, as for a free solution, we are spectacularly effective. The reason for that, and this is another thing that I can explain to enterprise customers and they get it very quickly. We have 20 different organizations giving us threat data. There, there are other filtering DNS providers and there, there are quite a few of them, but they have to either generate the threat data themselves, which is very difficult and very expensive to do. And so they get a, some of them will get a very good section. They'll get maybe 10% of high accuracy, but they don't have enough to cover the rest, the other 90%, right? They just, there's no, there's no such thing as an organization which has perfect cybersecurity awareness. No. But because of our particular way that we do things, where we exchange data with all these different threat providers, they're interested in giving us the data and their views of the threats landscape are quite different from each other. There's a high uniqueness between these different threat providers. So with these 20 different providers that we collect, we've got an extremely good coverage set that's difficult to beat right now. I think that this whole thing with the threat providers is quite interesting. And as I understand it, essentially you get a, a large blob of data from different type of providers with a lot of names or mm -hmm. DNS names that then you should see as malicious or, or dangerous. And when there is... Uh, questions coming to them, you simply drop the request or say you don't find them. Correct. Uh, how do you make sure that this data is good so that you don't get bad data sure. here? Sure. So I think most of what you're referencing are what are called false positives, meaning domains yeah. that are not in fact malicious that we block. Um, they do happen, but it's fairly rare. We have a reporting process for that. So end users can actually report that directly to us. And we have very quick turnaround on examination. You know, we'll look at the domain, first of all, talk to or examine the data that we have from the threat intelligence provider who gave it to us. But then also yep. we will independently go and look at different threat sources because there are a bunch of different open or semi-open and some closed uh, sources where you can validate threats against certain domains and say, well, is this still current or not? One of the big uh, so I'll say we do exceptionally well with false positives. We have very, very few false positives, you know, single digits across the span of a few days or a week, even in some cases. So uh, of the millions and millions of domains that we get, it's it's a very small figure. I'll say a large portion of the false positives we get are timing false positives, where a domain was malicious, like a, a domain gets hacked. Uh, malware is installed or some kind of payload is put on the website yep. and then it gets marked as malicious and then it gets picked up by one or more of our threat intelligence providers. And then the domain operator cleans it up, but cleaning it up and getting marked as safe again uh, does actually sometimes take some time. And so we'll often yep. get, you know, people that come to us and say, Hey, my domain was cleaned up. Why, why are you guys still blocking it? I, you know, that threat was there last week, but it's not there anymore. Like, well, yeah, I, we, we understand that and we'll try to validate it. But very often it's a timing question of, yeah, yeah you're, it yep. was bad, now it isn't. So we, we sometimes err or our threat intelligence providers will err on the side of safety and leave it in for a little longer before they retest completely. So that's a significant portion of the false positives we get, which is 
I, I understand it's still a false positive, but it's not, um, it's not as serious as a false positive where there wasn't a threat there in the first place. It's also a pretty dynamic world. On my day job, we see URLs or domains being completely harmless once they pass it through an email. And then it comes in Sunday evening, harmless, nothing found. Uh, Monday morning, it's armed. And yep, yep. Tuesday morning, it's gone. And it's a very dynamic, it's a highly automated process. We we have we have a we have a large amount of DGA things that come through, and we have specific providers who focus just on newly registered domains, trying to determine their what's the likelihood of them being good or bad. And yeah. so, yeah, there's there's a bunch of different ways you look at it, and that's again that's the benefit of twenty different providers doing this. We don't have, nor do we necessarily even want to have, <laughs> the insight as to why certain domains are being marked as malicious. Our job is to make that is to take action on them and to prevent the end user from getting there. We're not a threat analysis company. We don't try to determine why something is malicious. And you're not the reporting source. You're right. Enforcement point. Right. We're all our concern is how do we prevent bad things from happening to end users? We're not trying to take sites down. We're not trying to, you know, go and talk to registrars and get things deleted. That's that's not what we do. Our job is to protect the end user right now. That's that's our that's our interest. Talking about threat, have you been able to, to see anything from Ukraine, uh, from Russia? We, we have. And so there's there was some, certainly some volumetric pickup there um, in the last month where we see now there's a lot of more activity. When we look at the per query rate, threats per query, and there's a ratio um, that both Poland and Ukraine have clearly seen a pickup there um, that was associated relatively closely with uh, the start and processing of hostilities. And I know our chief security officer is now looking through a bunch of domains that we, one of our threat providers gave us and said specifically, we know these are, are domains that are specifically targeting Ukraine and people in that region. So we're trying to pull a report and actually look in a little bit further than we normally do just to see if we can see what the patterns are there. Normally our threat intelligence providers don't tell us particular campaigns, but this time it seems like an interesting thing to discover. So we are actually digging into that a little bit more and there should be some reports and maybe a blog on that here in the near future on our website. The whole situation as sad as it is in Ukraine, I think it's the first time that we really see the fourth theater of war unfold among big participants. We have Russia, which is a superpower, and, and suddenly we see cyber warfare really in action for the first time in a, in a large scale and a real war, right? Not just for intelligence pickups and stuff like that. Yep. I'm actually looking at charts in another window here. Our Kiev location is still operational. That's fantastic. <laughs> That's really great. So yeah, it's that's actually maintained mostly, uh, it's been online the entire time. We've certainly seen some, well, I shouldn't say the entire time. We've seen some drops uh, where we can see different ISPs coming on and offline. Mm. Again, aggregate data where we see changes in the curves. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's been online the whole time and there's still people using it. And again, seeing the kind of sh shifts in that region based on um, where populations are moving is, is interesting to watch. Yep. And you said that you see this hitting Ukraine and Poland and the reason Poland is here is it's not that because Poland is the target, it's more that that's where the Ukrainian traffic goes. That's the theory. <laughs> I mean, we, don't, we, don't, we don't have perfect data on that, but that's, that's a reasonable assumption to make. Uh, yeah. You know, a lot of a lot of Western uh, Ukrainian ISPs also connect in Poland, so we we see some spillover into those regions. Mm. Yeah, I want to go back a second. There was a topic that I was really curious about. You did an interview with the Lawrence Systems, where you mentioned some code that you would publish on GitHub. 
for us, Netgate PF Sense users sounded really oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah, I I for it, and I can't find I still it. No, I still still hasn't been published. So that, that's so you've actually hit on an interesting topic, and that's zero trust. Yeah, right. So the the so the the concept of zero trust with DNS is something that I'm sure I wasn't the first one to come up with, but I kicked this around back in 2016. Quad nine becomes really effective, or any DNS system becomes really effective if you can say I will not allow any connections, any IP layer connections out from my devices to anything that has not correctly resolved with my chosen trusted resolver. I think that's really, that is basically, it's a zero trust model. It is. And, um, and so the PFSense module that was like 90% written basically looks at the output from Unbound, yeah. inserts the IP addresses or the, the A or quad A records into a, an access list. I'll, ch- I'll let me change my pitch for a second here because I know that this is something that I try to get into every every podcast, every conversation I have. <laughs> quad Quad Nine is a not for profit. We are we are trying to do a lot of things with not a lot of money. Mm. Everyone here is working crazy hours. What I would ask your your viewers or your listeners rather to do is we are trying to find and be connected to anybody who has an interest in security. Quad9 is always looking for additional sponsorship at high levels. Like we need to hire a couple more people to make this work. So the PFSense module is an example is something that we had contracted out. And then frankly, just the hours, you know, the time of the, that we would have to invest in it just it ran away from us. So um, I would implore your listener, sh- listener audience to see if there's anybody that they might be able to connect us with who can fund some of the work that we're doing to just both keep expanding, but also to do some of these side projects, which were really interesting, but we just don't have the cycles to do. So again, I'll get off which my... Actually, but what we, what we didn't come to, right, that you were actually then, uh, based on the result, you would create a dynamic firewall rule, right. allowing that traffic for that session to pass through the yep. firewall. And then when that is taken down that session, it will start all over again. And Martin has well, a it, very big net gate that has a lot right. of processing power. <laughs> Well, it, I, you know, it, it actually isn't that huge. It's not for, for at least let's put it this way, for modern processors mm. with a, a reasonable amount of RAM, this is not a big lift. Um, I mean, we certainly keep already, we keep things in route caches, you know, in the hundreds of thousands or millions of prefixes. And this would be much smaller than that because it would be, it would be essentially equivalent to a DNS cache in mm. size, yeah. which is usually only a couple tens or 20,000 kind of entries in a small organization. We will help you push this, and we will definitely okay. advocate for that. Send me mail. What, I'll, what I can do is I can send you the really, really unfinished tarball. If you feel like putting it up on yes. GitHub, I, you know, we could talk about that. But it's it, it still needs some work. But yes, and again, this was going to be, this is another one of those things where Quad9 was hoping to prove an example, right? If we could present yeah. some code that made DNS filtering more effective for everybody, regardless of whether it's Quad9 or anybody else. This would be, I think, a benefit for everybody. And so, you know, we were trying to prove a case and say, all right, this here's a here's a test case. It works. You can do it. Or maybe you can't, right? We don't know. There are some protocols that that don't use DNS at all, which are really annoying. <laughs> um, and maybe, in fact, maybe even the one we're talking on right now, this is Zencaster, it, yeah. it may in fact be using uh, RTP over non DNS uh, resolved addresses, yeah. which might cause a problem. So, anyway, it was it, it's a test that needs to be examined. And again, that that zero trust model is becoming the buzzword, right? Zero trust is now the the big conversation. Um, all right, well, let's do zero trust with DNS and see what we get. Yeah, and we, and everybody talked yeah. about 
zero trust for the last 10, 12 years, and nobody really figured it quite out yet, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know some guys who sold a lot of firewalls based on the zero trust, and you know, but it really didn't have the effect. But throw us the tarball. We would really like to see the tarball and and, uh, and okay. try to create some some work around it. That would be beautiful. Yeah. All right, we will try it out in Michael's. PSMs. Yes, we will. <laughs> we will. Not in mine. <laughs> that's, have, that's the, have that's the thing. Standing here for, for yeah, the that's, that's the thing. Never try. Never try success with PF Sense on the family on the family network. I've learned that one. <laughs> yeah, you want yeah. yeah, but there's a lot of community around in the PF Sense. Also, set up the forwarders in your Unbound. Mm-hmm. Well, PF Sense now supports what well, the, the latest versions of Unbound, which of course then also support encryption. They they support yes. DOT. Yeah. So there's there's a quick recipe that you can find, I'm sure, by Googling about you know how to get Quad Nine activated on PF Sense. It's just adding a couple of lines in the. It's so easy to set it up. Let's go to the lawsuit in Germany. I've heard a little bit about sure. that. So um, the lawsuit in Germany is as really very quickly after Quad Nine made its announcement of its transfer into Switzerland, there was a, a lawsuit or basically an order that Sony sent to us that says that that they demanded that we stop resolving a certain domain name, which they allege, which which was not in Germany, the domain name resolved to a server outside of Germany, but they allege that that site then had links to another site, which were file sharing destinations for um, an album that Sony claims copyright on. So they said that Quad9 needs to stop resolving the domain because we are, there's a component of German law that basically says that we are accessories to the copyright infringement. And this lawsuit is currently underway. We've objected to that. We've said that we don't agree that that's the case and that that represents a significant overstep in interpreting the law as, as it's written in Germany. And that there is implications, there are implications for that even at the EU level where clarity is required. We, we believe that DNS resolvers should not be, uh, they should be essentially treated as transparent carriers for that kind of information. You know, these are pointers. So we've objected to that. And the first, our first objection was overruled, which is not surprising. It's the same court essentially that, that did that. So we're proceeding with the objection. And, you know, I can't talk a lot about the, the case as it stands now, but I, I can certainly give you the details of what the allegations are, that the assertions are. And our fear is that if this is allowed to stand, then it would not be an unreasonable extension of this model to that would say that any organization that can claim copyright or rights on something would be able to present to any other organization that has similar qualities to a DNS recursive resolver a demand that that organization stop access to uh, resources. Mm-hmm. So this would very quickly become anybody could press a claim and say, I demand that you stop accessing, you, you, you stop a- allowing access to this domain name because I have a, a record or I have a, a, a right on some content that is on that domain name. Uh, and this would be presented by company A to company B or by person A to company B, mm. not by a court. And so if you refused, if company B refuses, then the person can press a lawsuit and there would be standing for that. We believe that this is a particularly dangerous precedent if allowed to remain because organizations like Quad9 that run recursive resolvers, um, recursive resolvers will clearly be in that group, but also 
uh, anybody who operates a firewall uh-huh. is also very similar to that. If you look at the way the network model works, there's no reason that a firewall would be somehow uh, not in that classification. Uh-huh. If you operate a browser with a, a filter in the browser, like safe browsing, uh-huh. uh, our belief is that that would look very similar. It's a dangerous model to allow companies or individuals to claim and, and be able to enforce essentially content filtering um, with with no or with a very difficult intermediate process. Yeah. And the thing is that Sony Music didn't decide to sue Google for the same thing, right? Well, yeah. They, they decided to sue <laughs> the, they, the they decided to sue. Right. They decided to sue the nonprofit that had just moved to a nation which was under the convention that allowed them to extend that reach across borders. Yeah. So, you know, they didn't apply it to an ISP. They didn't apply it to a company that had a resolver that was resolving this. They didn't apply it to a VPN company. No. They applied it to the the easiest target, right? The target with the least amount of money. Yeah. Now they sort of picked poorly there, I think, because we've had a number of different organizations who have come to our support. The GFF in particular in uh, in Germany has reached out and given us quite a bit of support there. We've had some supporting comments from people like Echo, it's an ISP organization in Germany, and uh, uh, other other organizations in Europe who have said that you know this is this is clearly a dangerous thing, and they're, they're trying to help us in the lawsuit. Uh-huh. But it's not going to be an easy fight, and it's not over by far, and it's extremely expensive. Even even with the help that we're getting, we're spending lots of lots and lots of euros on lawyers, frankly, and it's burning up huge amounts of our time. And we could be doing a lot of good with this money and time, and we're not. We're spending it on defending against kind of a ridiculous allegation. Uh, allegation, yeah, yeah. but yeah, we're it's it's really it's a. You know, they could have chosen somebody else, but they didn't. And they're trying to pick the easy target. And it's really kind of frustrating. And it angers me that we have to spend our, waste our time on these cycles. But that's that's yep. the way it goes. That's the way the law is applied. We will plug the donation URL uh, for in, yeah. in the show it's, notes. Uh, it's quad9.com slash donate. Quad9.net. Dot net. Dot net. And it's actually so that if any of our listeners go in there and donate, and they do a screenshot on that and send that to our email that Michael will tell us in the end, I will match that donate up to 200 US dollars. Wow. Uh, awesome. Thank myself. you. That's the, that is great. Thank you well, very I'll much. I'll do that as well. It's really important. Yeah. Thank you very yeah. much. I, I mean, we, we, are, we are paying for other good services. Uh, so... Quad nine is free. At least we can see this as the the yearly fee or something. I will I will speak for everyone on the team and say that we really really appreciate that. Every 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 amount helps. So thank you very much both for doing that. Anything we didn't cover here from the outline that we talked about uh, the DNS in DNS in it's, ten years, John. Real quick, what is that actually? Oh boy, DNS in ten years. Um, that's too much of a mystery for me to even take a guess. I, I, I'm really hoping that everything is encrypted. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. D- D- so the DNS is in miniature what is happening to the internet on a much more global scale. Everything that you can imagine, every policy and politic, every international pull, it's happening in the DNS. And so if you watch the DNS and what's happening there, you will be able to predict what's going to happen to the internet as a whole. And so that's why it's a fascinating place to be right now. So what is going to happen? I'm sad to say I suspect there's going to be minor fragmentation where you're seeing some countries like uh, Russia and China, they start to separate out. Whether they are treated as pariahs 
or whether other nations follow their example, I couldn't tell you. I'm hoping for the former. I'm hoping that that any kind of fragmentation away from a central single route mm-hmm. is treated as an anomaly uh, from a policy perspective. We continue to hold the internet together mostly as a single item, and because that's the only way it's been effective. But it's going to be that, that's where there's going to be, I think, a lot of activity here in the next couple of years. What does the DNS look like in ten years? Um, I hope not too much different than it does now from as the way that answers are provided. Um, I suspect it will be slightly more centralized than it is now. You know, we are seeing you know organizations like Quad Nine are centralization, right? We are collecting more users where it used to be more dispersed. It's becoming more complicated. So it's more challenging. So I think, yes, there will be some more centralization, but I think it's going to reach a level and then stop. I think that we're not going to see complete centralization. It's just going to get to a certain percentage of people using centralized resolvers or or very large authoritative providers. And then it's going to kind of level out. Whereas I can't say that in some other areas of the internet where we're looking at other questions. But yeah, so I, I, I'm hoping not too much different from a technical perspective, more security and uh, more stability. There's different agendas with DNS in terms of what you want from DNS. Advertisers want time to eyeball, which is really important for them. And there may be other agendas. Are those overall political discussions or purpose discussions really part of what you hear in the, in the community? So the answer is yes. Those are clearly discussions that are occurring in the DNS community. We, we all know that those are things that are Money, money forces the way things happen, right? Oh, so I shouldn't say that. Money and politics force the way things happen. So they are definitely clearly discussions, but there is still a very strong dedication to uh, the technical purity, so to speak, of the DNS. There's, there, there, it is still, uh, it is not. There are new entrants in the DNS world, but there are still mostly most of the people are involved in creating the agendas for the DNS, they do have the best intentions in mind. And we do understand, we meaning the community in general, do understand that there are certain forces driving certain technologies or certain directions mm-hmm. and there's resistance. And But that's just the way that it's always been, right? The internet's always kind of had that funding versus technical purity struggle. So I, I still think that for the most part that the technical reasons are winning, meaning that I think the better decisions are being made. However, you can certainly see some cracks uh, or certainly some items on the agenda that are motivated by monetary or political interests. Mm. And the trick is to balance those so that both the technical and the political agendas can coexist at the same time, you know, so that we don't have a technical structure that is entirely driven by politics or by funding. Mm. And I, I think it's being done reasonably well right now. Centralization is certainly something that's being driven by money. Mm. And um, people point to Quad9 as being yet another centralized resolver, and that's true. We are yet another centralized resolver, Um, but we're not driven by motivation for profit. profit. We're driven by, as ridiculous as it sounds, I mean, we are driven by doing the right thing. And, you know, we would love to have some more funding to do that, And but we're not going to change our underlying mission, which is to, you know, we're not monetizing this. We're not charging end users for it. We're trying to do it for free. And um, it's a... It's an interesting place to be right now. It's an interesting struggle to watch from both the inside and the outside. Maybe one last question is, how's your growth and expansion going right now? <laughs> uh, the growth is always growth is always steady, um, which is also somewhat terrifying. Um, you know, our, our kind of looking at growth over time, we're looking now at around 2%, slightly more than 2% growth per week if we average things out, which is that's a lot. pretty, pretty steep. Yeah. And uh, we've got, we have a huge pipeline of new sites that we're trying to turn up. 
Um, we've got some really great donors who have given us um, some resources um, uh, and and we're trying to get those activated, you know, co-location and servers and things like that. And so we're trying to get those lit up. But again, it's a it's a struggle with a small staff, but um, we hope to see some significant city expansion here in the next probably two or three weeks even um, where we're lighting up some new locations. But we, as a, again, we're already like, uh, we're, we're more than 90 nations right now where we have our instances running. We expect that the next year we'll continue that kind of growth where we'll be at, you know, I'm hoping 200 and some odd to 220, maybe 240, depending on uh, what we get as far as um, additional uh, sponsorship and, and donations. So it's, it's going great. Um, you know, um, uh, there's a saying that uh, we used to use. We, we lose money on every query, but we make it up in volume. That's like, that's, 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 that was, that's a whole, that's all discounting structure. We, we lose money on every deal, but we make it up in volume. Well, we lose money on every query, but we make it up in volume. But you know, the more users we get, the more difficult it becomes for us to keep up. We're getting some, as I said, we're getting really great sp- uh, promotion sponsorship by organizations who are helping us with materials. And uh, now we just need to make it up so we can have enough people to, to keep up with it, which, which is, which is a challenge. But again, everyone here at quad nine, is invested heavily in the mission. That's why we work here. Um, And um, it's really interesting work. And the fact that we're doing good for people for both keeping them from being defrauded and and ripped off and then also keeping them from, keeping them out of the clutches of of marketing and um, privacy consumptive organizations is great. And so I think that's what keeps us all going. We hope when we... We have this uh, episode that uh, you'll see a little sp- uh, spike in the Scandinavian data. I hope so too. I hope so too. We we actually just hired a a, a systems person who started last week. He's based in Sweden, so that's uh, we're we're Ooh. we're starting we're starting to move more into the Nordics. Oh, that's good. That's, that's good because that would be my uh, next question. How about the noise? Yeah. When will Denmark and Sweden change color on the map? <laughs> yes, well, Sweden, Sweden's been on our list for a long time where we've been trying to get in. And um, hopefully with some both this new staff member as well as some other machinations we're doing, we'll see Sweden. Um, Denmark is more challenging. We don't have any, I, I, there's no there's no agenda right now for Denmark, but Sweden is, is on the list. We, we turned up Oslo uh, just only a few weeks ago. Mm. So we're, we're steadily moving north and covering more spots on the map in that direction. So what's the trouble in Denmark? Uh, there is a, well, so Denmark is actually very well served by some of the countries around it. So when we talk about, you know, where do we position equipment? How do we spend money for the geography? Mm. We need to get into, uh, this is is a much longer discussion. We we need to get, we need to get into an IX or we need to get into a, a, a provider who is able to provide us access to all the ISPs, or I shouldn't even say ISPs, all the networks, all the major networks within a nation. And so the IX is typically the best place for that. So our partnership with Packet Clearinghouse, PCH, mm. um, has allowed us to be right next to the IX or on the IX in most of the locations we're in. So I don't think that there is currently anything on the schedule for the uh, whatever the IX is in Denmark. And I'm sorry, the I don't the know what that is. The Danish Internet Exchange okay. is the Dix and um, yeah. Okay, Copenhagen, I, I see yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so I don't think we have a. St- I don't think I don't think that Packet Clearinghouse has a target for that IX yet. If they do, then Quad Nine will appear. The other way we do that is we partner with one of our uh, our one of the companies that's giving us resources. As an example, um, I3D, who's based in the Netherlands, they've given us resources, and so if they are in that location, then as an example, we might be able to turn up with them. Um, but it is um, it does come down to. Either we need to have donated resources that are already there in the facility, hmm. or 
If not, there are some places where we actually will ship our own equipment. But again, funding is extremely tight for that kind of thing. And we try to economize where we can and not ship our own gear. And yeah. with the exception of very, very so large So how much locations. money should we uh, deliver for having a, <laughs> a, a Quad 9 resolver in <laughs> no, Denmark? I, 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 uh, I can't. Where are we? Uh, it's in the, it's in the, it's in the thousands of euros. Um, and, but we'd need to talk about that. Like if, but you know, it's not, it's not, <laughs> we don't, you know, it's, it's not like quad nine. If you give quad nine money, we can't deploy in a location. We can, but we typically yeah. like, we'd, we'd like to be able to do that in like five or six locations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is typical Michael to do a, a rat hole yeah, like yeah. this. So I understand. Don't listen I'm to him. Curious. Focus on Sweden. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks a lot, John. I think Thank you very much it. for Is having me. Is there anything you want to pluck? Other than other than ta- people taking advantage of your matching contributions, no, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. I they don't. should. Thank they you should. both. They should. Great. Yeah. Once again, thanks you so much, John, for joining the podcast today. It was a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks a lot, John. It was a great pleasure to have you. And I hope everybody learned something new. And we have a lot to talk about in the after show. So, guys, I think we should frame the donations a little bit so uh, we are clear with what we what we say and what we promise with the uh, matching donation offer. So, as we said in the show, we are matching the uh, the donations that you guys do, and the only thing you need to do is that you need to go into quad9.net/donation and do your donation take a screenshot of the i think they're using paypal so you will get a paypal receipt take a screenshot of that and send that to us and that Mm -hmm. will be at hosts at smartare.tech and you can also send it through twitter if you're connected to us there and there will be a page on our web page smartare tech i don't know the exact url yet it will be in the show notes and where we'll also talk a little bit about that and we will also actually appreciate if you would tweet something or put something in the social network where you are saying that you are supporting private and secure dns therefore i donated to quad nine or something like that uh, but yeah. send us that receipt and after one month after the release of this uh, podcast we will count the the sum the total sum of the donations that you have done and if you give more than 400 us dollars 400 us dollars or more we will match those 400 us dollars and we are super happy to do this of course because we think quad nine is a fantastic service you can donate one dollar two dollars five dollars ten dollars any donation is really appreciated by the guys at quad nine and just remember that you are getting a lot of value that will actually protect you from a lot of current threats around the internet it is really updated it's high quality service and if you follow the configurations guides uh, you will also get encrypted dns meaning that you are no longer paying with your privacy for doing DNS. And that is a really, really important thing. And it leads me to, you know, we had a conversation in the in the pre-show about what is the cost of privacy? And there is a cost. Yeah, yeah definitely. There is a large cost. Like, you know, we haven't counted the total number, but what we use on ProtonMail, ProtonVPN, 
where we use on firewalls and especially only ours that we need to get a private setup where we protect ourselves and our children and you know that is there is a cost associated with this but what they're doing at quad nine is actually free there is no price yeah. for the end users to pay. I can't stress that enough. So $1, $5, $10, whatever, we will match it up to the total of $400. That's the, the least we can do. That's the least we can do, yeah. It matches what I pay for Proton Mail for two years, something yeah. like that. No, that was it's, also what I was thinking, that I'm, I'm paying quite a lot for, for my email service. And yeah, I, I get a lot of emails and I use my email every day, but... I think I actually use the DNS more. Yeah, you do. But you get a lot of privacy on your email and you can get DNS privately and secure for free. That is, yeah. you know, what's not to like here. Exactly. So I think this was a really good episode today. Don't you think that, guys? That was a great one. And I learned a lot. That's also always a, a plus. Yeah. Look forward to one year down the road because we already made the appointment with John that we will call him back in a year and hear how they're doing at Quad9. Yeah. And and my gut feeling is says that he will uh, he will ask us how did you do with the PFSense module? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there will be something about the PFSense module as well, because we have actually received the top all from John and we're looking at it and we're discussing what yeah. to do about it. But there will be something on it. Yeah, we will need to, to at least investigate it a little bit and, and see if we can find someone that would... Call for developers. Absolutely. We need to get this done. Yeah. So thank you, everyone that has listened so far. It's a pleasure to have you on our podcast. And if you want to know more about me, that speaks first. I can't say Swedish anymore because we speak English, all of us. Uh, you can go to my personal blog, that is martinhagen.se, and it's in English. Or you can find me on Twitter at martinhagen. Jens, you can find that Twitter at J-E-H-P-E-T. And Michael can be found on Twitter as well, at D-R-E-V-E-S. And the whole podcast can be found at Twitter as well on Smarter Tech. And the podcast website can be found at smartlight.tech. Please take a look at the show notes for details and links for the things we talked about in today's episode. Have a good time until next time. Bye. Adieu. Bye.